Did you know that every time a president of the United States is sworn in, uh, they are asked to provide a playlist of their favorite songs, which will then be performed on Inauguration Day. So our, our last inauguration back in January of 2013, uh, here's some of the songs that President Barack Obama provided. Okay, this is his playlist. Uh, Signed, Sealed, Delivered by Stevie Wonder, Get Ready by Smokey Robinson, Edge of Glory, Lady Gaga. You could see from the titles, you know, the statement he's trying to make, uh, the glorious rain is about to begin. Ordinary people, he's just a president of regular folks. New Day by Alicia Keys. These are, are some of the songs from Obama's playlist. Now, there's one song that makes it to every new president's playlist. In fact, this is a song that the Marine Band strikes up every time a president of the United States make a, makes a formal appearance. You know the name of that song? Call it out if you know it. Yeah, Hail to the Chief, a song that was written back in 1812, played for the first time in honor of George Washington. And then the song kind of you know, wasn't used a whole lot for several decades until President James Polk came along, the 11th president of the United States. Historians tell us he was not a very impressive guy. Uh, when he walked into a crowded room, nobody noticed. And so one day his wife said to him, I got an idea, why don't you have the band strike up this song, Hail to the Chief, and then people will know you're in the room. I'm not making this up. And so that's how this became, Hail to the Chief, became the... Uh, the song that every president announces every president, the official presidential song, song that's played especially on Inauguration Day. Well, today, we're going to take a look at the lyrics to a song in the Bible that was played on Inauguration Day in ancient Israel. It was played every time a new king took the throne. King David, Israel's second king, Israel's most famous king, was the first leader for whom this song got played, but it quickly became the official kingly coronation song, historians tell us. Every time a new king was crowned, this song was at the top of the playlist. I'm going to call it a song of coronation. I want you to turn to it. It's found in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. We're not only celebrating Easter uh, today, we're actually culminating a sermon series that began six weeks ago. Uh, so we, we've been studying in the Old Testament book of Psalms, a series that we've called Playlist, Psalms for the Head and the Heart. And we call it Playlist because the 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms are all songs. They're, they're songs composed for God, songs composed by a variety of writers over several centuries and then eventually collected together into one book, the book of Psalms. And this book became the playlist, the worship playlist for God's people in ancient times. If you've been here during the series, we've also pointed out that this book would have been Jesus' playlist. I mean, these, these would have been the songs that Jesus learned as a child, memorized by heart and, and sung in his home and in the synagogue. Why are we looking at Psalm 2 on Easter weekend? Well, because Psalm 2, and this is pretty amazing, Psalm 2 actually points to Jesus and his resurrection, even though it was written centuries before Jesus came to earth. So a little bit of background about Psalm 2, this song that I'm calling a song of, of coronation. It announced the crowning of a new king, but the new king that's described in Psalm 2, we're going to see in just a moment, is more magnificent, more powerful than any human king could possibly be. 
There are a number of psalms that follow this same pattern. They describe a king who sounds supernatural, a king whom the psalms say is going to reign forever and ever and ever. And so over time, Old Testament believers began to realize that these psalms were not just about an earthly king, they were prophecies, prophecies about a coming ultimate king. And people began to associate this ultimate king with the Savior whom God had promised to send the world one day. And the Hebrew name for Savior is Mashiach, Messiah. And so the Psalms about this coming Savior slash ultimate king are often referred to as Messiah Psalms or Messianic Psalms. Psalm 2 is a Messianic Psalm. You following all this? Jesus eventually arrived on planet Earth announced that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior slash ultimate King. And then after his crucifixion and resurrection and return to heaven, his followers began spreading the word about Jesus. And they would often use Psalm 2 to point to Christ, say hundreds of years before he came to the planet, this Psalm announced his coming. And, And it said that his reign as the ultimate King would be inaugurated by his resurrection. And so Easter, Easter is Inauguration Day. Easter is Inauguration Day. We're going to take a look at this psalm. I'm calling it an Easter psalm. It's one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. There are four parts to this song of coronation. If you haven't taken the outline in your program out, I'd encourage you to do so and just fill fill it in as we go along as God is our teacher First part of the psalm is this. It describes self-rulers who rebel. Rulers who rebel. Let me read the opening verses of Psalm 2 to you. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Stop right there. So the opening verses of the psalm, describes this, uh, you know, this, this coming king who will be rejected, who will be rebelled against. Uh, look at the second half of verse 2. It's not just the Lord that the kings of the earth are going to rebel against. It's against his anointed. Now, if you've got your own Bible, circle the word anointed, really important word. In the Hebrew of the Old Testament, it is the word Mashiach, Messiah. They're going to rebel against the Lord and against his Messiah, his savior slash ultimate king. Even more interesting, in the Greek New Testament, okay, in the Hebrew Old Testament, anointed is the word Mashiach, Messiah. In the Greek New Testament, it's the word Christos, Christ, from which we get Jesus Christ. So this is a prophecy of the rejection, the rulers that are going to rebel against King Jesus. One of Jesus' original disciples, a fellow named Peter, he quoted the opening verses to this psalm sometime after Jesus had been crucified and risen from the dead and and returned to heaven. And then he explained how this prophecy of Psalm 2 had recently been fulfilled in Jerusalem. Listen to these words of Peter, Acts chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. He begins with a quote of Psalm 2. He says, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Straight out of Psalm 2. Peter continues, 
Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, in Jerusalem, to conspire against God's holy servant, Jesus. You hear what Peter's saying here? Say, when, when wicked King Herod and the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, when they sentenced Jesus to death, it was a fulfillment of Psalm 2. When the crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him. When soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Peter personally witnessed what Psalm 2 had prophesied, people rebelling against God, people rebelling against God's anointed, the Savior, the ultimate King, Jesus Christ. Now, before we move on from this historical scene, the crucifixion, let me point out that this sort of rebelling against Jesus is still going on today. And we, we've all, every one of us, ha have done our fair share of it. Oh, we, we don't rebel against cute little baby Jesus, who we celebrate on Christmas. We don't rebel against Jesus, the great moral teacher who taught us to love your neighbor as yourself. We don't rebel against Jesus, the martyred Savior who died on the cross. The Jesus we rebel against is Jesus, the ultimate king. You know, that's the Jesus we have a hard time with. And the reason is because we see ourselves as ultimate rulers. We're self-rulers. We, we have the final say about our lives. We're not about to give that right up to somebody else who's going to tell us how to live. No to King Jesus. N-O, no. I read an interesting blurb in my news magazine a week or so ago about Sarah Paulson. Uh, Sarah's a well-known actress. She's currently starring in uh, two very popular TV series, uh, American Horror Story and The People versus O.J. Simpson, neither of which I've seen yet. Uh, but in this article, she talks about the uh, variety of sexual partners she's had. She's had a man, she's had women, she's had young, she's had old. She's currently partnered with a 73-year-old woman. Yeah, Sarah is like 40, 41 years old. At the end of the interview, she said, and I quote, if my life choices had to be based on what was expected of me, well, that's going to make me feel really straightjacketed. You hear what she's saying? Yeah, it, nobody's going to tell me how to live. Nobody's expectations, morality-wise or otherwise, are going to rule my life. Sarah Paulson doesn't want to feel, this is her closing comment, she doesn't want to feel straightjacketed. And I thought to myself as I read those words, this sounds a lot like the crowd, the rebellious crowd in Psalm 2 that says in verse 3, you know, throw off those chains, throw off those shackles. And God and King Jesus aren't going to tell us what to do. Now, now truthfully, don't we all tend to view God's standards from time to time as chains or shackles. I mean, we, we don't want to obey everything God says to do in his Bible. You know, that would be so confining. That would be restrictive. That would be narrow. Isn't that how we think? I mean, you, you just stop and consider everything Jesus taught. Give generously to the poor. Forgive people who treat you badly. Don't lust. Set aside time every week to worship God. Serve others. Always tell the truth. On and on it goes. Who wants to do all that? Throw off the chains. Throw off the shackles. 
Now, most of us wouldn't say it quite that way. I mean, some of us would. <laughs> you know, some of us rebel against God and King Jesus quite flagrantly, and we don't really care. But most of us take a more subtle approach. We, we rebel in passive-aggressive ways. We just, we just ignore what King Jesus has to say. We have no interest in what he taught or in applying it to our lives. And here's the interesting thing about our rebellion. We actually convince ourselves it's the path to freedom. See, we're going to be free to do what we want to do. We're, we're not going to be constrained by obedience to King Jesus. Really. Jesus once told a group of his listeners that they had a twisted view of freedom. He said, you know, if you'll hold to my teaching, if you'll follow me, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. They immediately became indignant. What do you mean free? Like we got to obey you in order to be free? We're already free. Jesus continued, this is in John chapter 8, he said, no, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Let me tease out what Jesus is saying here, that our, our so-called freedom leads to slavery. It does. You know, our, our freedom to hold a grudge, you know, I'm going to hate him if I want to hate him, enslaves us to bitterness. Our, our freedom to drink as much as we want to drink enslaves us to an addiction. Our freedom to uh, sleep with whomever we want to sleep with enslaves us to broken relationships. Our freedom to spend money lavishly on ourselves enslaves us to materialism. Our freedom to play hours and hours and hours of video games enslaves us to a life without purpose. I mean, on and on it goes. Every time we do what we want to do and we rebel against what King Jesus wants us to do, it leads to bondage. We think we're breaking the chains. We think we're throwing off the shackles when in reality we're putting them on. Self-rulers rebel. It's the first part of, of Psalm 2. Number two, God laughs. God laughs. I want to tell you about a good laugh that Sue and I had recently. Uh, we were headed down to Haiti to connect with our international impact partner down there and had to go through Miami, so we decided to stop in Miami for a couple of days of R&R. &R. And uh, while we were there, we went to this uh, tropical theme park, exotic animals and birds. And there's a, there's a park ranger who every hour does a little show. He pulls out three or four animals. He, he likes to collect wounded animals and then nurse them back to health. So he pulls out three or four of these animals and he gives you some background about them. So the first three were really strange. Uh, but the, the fourth one he brought out, the final animal he brought out, I'd seen a lot of times by the side of the road. It was an opossum. Ever seen an opossum? Yeah. So he, he shows us this, this opossum, and the guy had a, a, a dry sense of humor, almost like a stand-up comedian. And he said, truthfully, that this opossum has the smallest brain among land mammals in the United States. And he said, because its brain is so small, it's, it's so stupid, it can't defend itself, doesn't know what to do, can't fight back. But the only thing it can do, it will bare its teeth if an enemy approaches. And it's got more teeth than any other land mammal in the United States. That's the only thing it's got going for it. So it bears its teeth, but if the enemy doesn't back off, okay, the opossum is, you know, he's got no more strategies. So what he does is he faints. Yeah, yeah, his eyes roll back in his head, his mouth foams up, he flops over on his back, and he wets himself. 
Now, now by this time in the presentation, Sue and I weren't kind of laughing out loud because we're just imagining this little possum meeting a big bear in the woods, you know, and the possum goes like that. And the bear sort of shrugs, rises on its hind legs, growls, and the possum does his routine, flops over and messes itself. Why am I telling you this? (laughs) Because I want you to keep that picture in mind as we look at the next section of Psalm 2. So rebellious people rage against God. We're going to live the way we want to live. You're not going to tell us what to do. What's God's response as these little opossums bare their teeth at him? Okay? Pick it up at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Okay, what's God's response to our rebellion? To those of us who think we can live as we please, God laughs. God, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. You know, this is the only place in the Bible where God is described as laughing. And it's not a ha-ha funny sort of laugh. It's, it's more like a, are you kidding me kind of laugh. I mean, the, the, the opossum has bared its teeth. And that's the best it's got. You know, the bear rises on its hind legs and, and growls. And the, the opossum's got nothing, nothing left, rolls over and does its routine. Is, is God intimidated by people who say, you know, we don't have to do what you tell us to do. We're, we're, we're going to rule our own lives. We reject you and your anointed one, your ultimate king, who you've tried to foist upon us. You know, God's response to this sort of rebellion, he just shakes his head and he laughs, kind of like the, uh, the bear that shrugs its shoulders and ambles off. And chuckling to itself at the opossum. God, God growls, look at verse 5 again, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Please understand, this is not God's characteristic behavior. Okay, the, the, the Bible doesn't describe a God who's constantly walking around in a foul mood looking for somebody to scorch. You know, th- this is a provoked Response. This is God's response to those who, who refuse to surrender to his rule and the rule of King Jesus in their lives. God isn't intimidated by that sort of rebellion. So when King Herod and Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders of the day, when they put Jesus to death on the cross, God didn't wring his hands. They, they weren't able to stop King Jesus from taking his throne. Look look again at what God says to these rebellious people, verse 6. He says, I have installed my king on Zion. Zion's just another name for the capital city of God's kingdom. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. See, God and King Jesus are going to reign. God is going to have the final say. God is going to have the last laugh. Christopher Hitchens made a name for himself as a notorious atheist. In fact, he didn't like the term atheist. He thought that was far too passive. You know, that just means somebody who doesn't believe in God. He called himself an anti-theist, someone who's aggressively opposed to any notion of God. Why? Because he said, if, if you've got God, you've got a totalitarian ruler, and I want my freedom. 
And so he wrote over 30 books against God, against Christianity. He debated Christian leaders in public forums on university campuses, uh, you know, on TV shows, whatnot. And, and then he got throat cancer, and in the midst of dying from throat cancer, he announced to the public, he said, if somebody ever comes along after I'm gone and says that Christopher Hitchens had a deathbed conversion, you know, in the last moment sort of turned his life over to Christ, don't believe him. It will never happen. And it never happened. It didn't. But who won that confrontation between Christopher Hitchens and God? You know, he passed away in 2011. Who's still standing? Who still reigns? See, is, is, is God intimidated by someone like Christopher Hitchens? Friend, you can reject God. You can reject God's existence. You can reject God's book. You can reject God's moral standards. I'm not going to live that way. You can reject God's ultimate king, Jesus Christ. But God always has the last laugh. And all our, all our rejecting won't change the reality that King Jesus reigns. King Jesus reigns. Which brings us to the third part of the psalm, which I've called King Jesus reigns. I pick it up at verse 7, where we left off. And the, these next verses, by the way, are spoken by the ultimate king, the one whom God has just put on the throne in verse 6. Verse 7 begins, I will proclaim the Lord's degree, decree. He said to me, okay, God said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Okay, let's zero in on verse 7 for a moment. The ultimate king is speaking and he says that God said to him, this is middle of verse 7. God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. This verse is quoted 10 times in the New Testament, and it's always applied to Jesus. These are words that God spoke to Jesus. So what did God say? Take a look at the first half of the statement. You are my son. Now, there were two times that God said this to Jesus during the course of his earthly life and said it rather dramatically. The first was when Jesus commenced his public ministry. And Jesus decided to do it with a baptism. He asked his cousin John the baptizer to baptize him in the Jordan River in order to launch his ministry. And there was a crowd around. And when Jesus came out of the water, Scripture says the heavens opened and a voice spoke and said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is my son. A couple of years later, in the midst of his ministry, Jesus takes three closest friends, three amigos, Peter, James, and John, away with him up into the mountain to kind of do a prayer retreat together. And as they're there, the disciples look, and Jesus is transfigured before their very eyes. Bible scholars call this the transfiguration. His clothes begin to gleam brightly. His face is brighter than the sun. They're, they're, they're terrified, and if that wasn't scary enough, suddenly this voice booms from heaven, and it says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. So the coming ultimate king who's prophesied in Psalm 2, the one to whom God says, verse 7, you are my son, that king is Jesus Christ. 
What about the second half of the statement that God makes to the ultimate king? You are my son. Today I have become your father. This too is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Now the question is, when did God say this to Jesus? And if this were a quiz and I ask you, so when do you think? When do you think God would say to Jesus during the course of his earthly life, today I have become your father? Wouldn't you think this would be the sort of statement made at Bethlehem? Okay, uh, Mary gives birth to Jesus, places him in the manger. The angel choir breaks out in song and a booming voice says, today I have become your father. Interestingly, that's not when God says it to Jesus. Let me read to you some words of the Apostle Paul. Years after Jesus has returned to heaven, the Apostle Paul is speaking to a group of Jews in a synagogue. And Acts 13, verses 32 and 33 record his words. Paul says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he's fulfilled for us, their children. Now listen. By raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, Paul's about to... To, to quote Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have become your father. Paul continues, God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. So according to the Apostle Paul, when did God say to Jesus, today I've become your father? When did he say it? At what? At the resurrection. Why at Jesus' resurrection? Seems like a strange thing to say, today I have become your father. Well, today I have become your father was an expression used in ancient Israel on the day when a king took the throne. See, it was a symbolic way of saying God has birthed you into this exalted position. God has now established your reign. He is fathering you as king. So friends, if these words were spoken by God to Jesus at Jesus' resurrection, what does that tell us about the Easter event? It tells us that Jesus' resurrection from the dead marked the beginning of his reign as God's ultimate king. It means Easter was inauguration day. It means that Easter was not just about a dead guy who came back to life. It was about a dead guy who conquered sin and death and Satan and hell, rose from the dead, and then took his throne as king over the universe. That's Easter. Jesus taking his throne. Now, I, I know what some of you are thinking. I could guess what you may be thinking, okay? I should say it that way. You're thinking to yourself, well, if Jesus is on the throne of the universe, how come the world's so messed up? You know, why is there not more evidence that Jesus is king? It's a great question. Let, let, let me try to answer with an analogy, and you may have heard this one before. But if you know anything about World War II, you know your history, you know that for all intent and purposes, the war ended on June 6, 1944. What was the big event, June 6, 1944? You know, call it out. Okay, some history buffs out there. D-Day. This is the day that 150,000 Allied troops, these are the good guys, they crossed the English Channel on anything that could float. They stormed the beaches of Normandy, and they broke the stranglehold that Nazi Germany had on Europe. For all intent and purposes, this was the end of the war. This was the victory of the Allies. Now, officially, the war didn't end for another 10 months. It didn't end until May 8, 1945, when Nazi Germany officially surrendered. So you got D-Day, 
10 months later, VE Day victory in Europe Day. And during that time, the Allies are just slowly marching toward Berlin, relentlessly mopping things up. Okay, here's the analogy. That first Easter, Resurrection Day, that's D-Day. Jesus rose from the dead. The enemy was defeated. Jesus took his throne. Now, there's some mopping up going on, friends. And one day, the mopping up will be finished, and Jesus will return, and that'll be VE Day. And that's when we'll see the fulfillment of verse 8 of Psalm 2. I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. That's when Jesus will begin his reign over a new heaven and new earth. We don't see that yet. But the day's coming. And the reign has commenced. That first Easter was inauguration day. Now that brings us to the fourth and final part of the psalm. I call it the wise surrender. Okay, those who are wise surrender. The closing verses of Psalm 2 challenge us to make a decision. The decision is this. What are you going to do with King Jesus? Okay, we're at, we're, we're at a fork in the road, and the psalm is about to say that the wise, the wise path is to surrender our life to him. The foolish path is to go on rejecting him. You know, maybe not overtly, but at least marginalizing him in our lives. Pick it up at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what are you going to do with King Jesus? I want you to picture yourself this Easter right now as a, being at a fork in the road. Do you take the path of surrender or do you continue to hold Jesus at arm's length? In a wise people, verse 10 begins, therefore you kings be wise, wise people surrender. And there are two aspects of this surrender that are described in Psalm 2. We, we must surrender to King Jesus as both our refuge and our ruler. Let, let me explain. We'll start with refuge. Look at the closing line of Psalm 2, the very last sentence of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I like that word, refuge. Looked it up in the dictionary. The dictionary says a refuge is a place of safety. It's a place of protection from danger and distress. Yeah, find your refuge in Jesus, the psalm says. You know, there, there, there's sort of a, a, a warm feeling to that expression. And the reason I like it is that there's, there's not a whole lot of emotional warmth in Psalm 2. So, psalm 2 is a butt-kicking psalm. Psalm 2 is a stern warning to all who think that they could reject King Jesus as ruler and run their own lives. Psalm 2 tells us again and again, you know, this sort of rebellion is not going to go over well with God. In, in fact, look again at verse 12, the, the verse that ends with that warm line about Jesus being our refuge. How does the verse begin? Kiss his son, kiss God's son, or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. You say, whoa, that sounds pretty harsh. 
Surrender to Jesus or, or you're toast. But let me put this command at the beginning of verse 12, that we should kiss God's son, we should kiss King Jesus. Let me put it in a different light. I, I want you to imagine that you've come into the throne room of heaven. If you were here at the beginning of our services and at our campuses, you saw the light come up on the throne. There's a majestic, powerful awesomeness about this scene. You're in heaven's throne room, and you look across the room, and King Jesus, the ultimate king of the universe, is seated on his throne. So you approach him, and as you get closer, you do what people do these days to an earthly king when they've entered his presence. You bow. Okay, you bow to, you're picturing this? You bow to King Jesus, and he extends his hand to you. Now, what does proper protocol require you to do with that hand? You're going to shake the hand? Glad to meet you, too. Not the ultimate king of the universe. You're going to fist bump it? High five it? What are you going to do? Call out. What are you going to do? You're going to kiss the hand. So you lean forward to kiss the hand. That's the appropriate thing to do. And as you look at the hand, you see something that's pretty unusual. There's a hole in the hand. The hand that's been extended to you to kiss, there's a hole in the hand. In fact, as you look more closely, both of King Jesus' hands have holes in them. Where do the holes come from? The holes came from the spikes that were driven through the hands to hold King Jesus to the cross. Why the cross? Because Jesus died the death we deserve to die. So you go back to the first point of the psalm. We're all rebels. We all say, no thank you to God's kingship. I'll run my own life. And that leads to disaster. We go our way, we disconnect from the one who's not only the ruler of the universe, he's the source of life. What happens when you disconnect from the source of life? You die. The penalty of sin is death. We all deserve eternal death. We've defied the ruler of the universe and gone our own way. And yet Jesus loves us so much. Jesus loves us so much that he says, I'll take their penalty. I'll go to the cross. I'll die the death they deserve to die. And now when King Jesus extends his hand to you, it's a nail-scarred hand. If you kiss it, if you surrender your life to King Jesus, he will become your refuge. And now we understand what refuge means. It's protection from the punishment we deserve. But if you refuse to surrender to King Jesus, then you yourself will pay for your own rebellion. And that's why the second line of verse 12 warns us, your way will lead to your destruction. In other words, it's your choice. We must surrender to Jesus as our refuge. Have you ever done that? And then we must surrender to Jesus as our ruler. I mean, that's what Psalm 2 is all about. That's what Easter is all about. It's Jesus risen from the dead, enthroned as the ultimate king. So will you surrender to him as ruler? You know, quite frankly, some people just want a Good Friday Jesus. They want a Jesus who died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins so that they could go on living as they choose to live for themselves. 
And I want to tell you, there is, no such thi- there is no such thing as a Good Friday only Jesus. The Jesus who died on Good Friday rose from the dead to become our king. And if we don't surrender our lives to him as ruler, then we don't get him as refuge either. We're on our own to face the punishment our sins deserve. So I want to give you an opportunity this Easter, 2016, to surrender to Jesus Christ, the ultimate king. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads together with me, and in just a moment, the pastors at all four of our campuses are going to lead you in a prayer of surrender. If you've never done this before and you say, well, how would I know if I, if I have? You'd know. And if you don't know for sure, now's a day to make certain. Now's a day to say, yes, I surrender fully to Jesus. I want him to be the refuge, the ruler of my life. So let's pray. Let's tell him that from our hearts. Let me lead you in a prayer. And if this comes from your heart, you can repeat this in, in your heart. The words that themselves don't matter so much as the attitude with which you express these thoughts. Dear Jesus, I want you to be my refuge. I recognize today that my sins have separated me from a holy God. I have disconnected from the source of life, and so I deserve to die. But I understand, Jesus, that you took the death I deserve when you died on the cross. Would you apply what you did to me? Would you take the punishment I deserve and give me forgiveness? But what's more, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you today as ruler. And maybe at this point, if you're praying from your heart, you're thinking, I've I've never done this part. I've sort of wanted the forgiveness, but without his rule in my life. If that's you, keep, keep praying. Lord Jesus, I want to get off the throne of my life. Stop pretending to be king or queen. And I want Jesus to take that spot. I want to begin to learn what Jesus taught and obey it. I want to learn what it means to follow him. Now, friends, as we're bowed before God, you know, we extend this sort of an invitation with regularity at Christ Community Church. And whenever we do, we say to people, you're making a decision right now in your heart, but you can't see your heart. So 24 hours from now, you're going to wonder, well, did I do this or did I not do it? Did I surrender to Jesus and say, yeah, I want you to be my refuge. I want you to be the ruler of my life. Just another way of saying, I want you to be my savior and king. So I'm going to ask you to do something physical right now that will help you tomorrow and the next day and six months from now and two years from now to say, yes, I did that. I surrendered to Christ. Here's what I want to to ask you to do. If you just prayed that prayer of surrender from your heart, I want you to stand up for one second and then sit back down. That's it. Just stand up right where you are right now. Cross the auditorium. Yeah, see you. Good. Keep going. Keep going. I surrender to Christ. I want him to be my refuge, my ruler. Stand up and then sit back down. Up in the balconies, you as well, the main floor, 
Now, don't let this day pass. Don't live with eternal regrets that you refused the king whom God has appointed. If you want a refuge and a ruler, stand up and then sit back down. I see you. Good. I see some more. Lord God, I pray not only for those who stood, I pray for those who in their hearts have been saying, yes, this is what I want, and perhaps just stayed glued to their seats, God. But I pray that the transformation that begins when King Jesus comes to live on the inside, when we begin to walk in step with him, when we follow him with our whole heart, when we receive the forgiveness we, we didn't deserve, when we understand that we're following a ruler who wants our best, who gave his life for us. We're following a ruler who has scars in his hands from the spikes that held him to the cross where he paid the debt we deserve to pay. God, I, just, I pray that these first steps we've just taken would be followed up by next steps. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.